good morning again. Welcome again, everyone. Welcome again, everyone online here to All Saints Sunday. Uh, on this day, I want to spend a little bit of time imagining uh, what, the end, what the end of the world is like. I know that always sounds so ominous. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, all the, the plagues and uh, the, the, the bowls of wrath and dragons and all this kind of stuff in Revelation. That stuff is there. That's what leads up to the end. That's not the end. Uh, the end is actually a little bit different. The end ends on a high note. In fact, a really amazing, wonderful high note. And nobody ever reads it because everyone gets fixated on the hard stuff and <coughs> it makes much better pop culture references to talk about things like the four horsemen, right? Um, you do a fun little Google search on the four horsemen and you'll find memes all over the place, such as, can you get the first one, Jimmy? The four horsemen of relationship problems. I was like, that's a little bit of a stretch. It's not like I don't believe that criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling can hurt your relationships. I'm not quite sure that has to deal with the apocalypse and fall of the Roman Empire. Um, then you have other ones, such as the four horsemen of the gig food delivery system that are destroying the local restaurants, such as Grubhub, Uber Eats, and Postmates, there we go, DoorDash, that makes it four, there we go. Um, and then, of course, you know, my favorite is the four horsemen of big tech, right? Starting at the left of Google, you've got Sindar Pichai, then, of course, Tim Cook from Apple, Jeff Bezos, the rocket man, and the ever-emotionally expressive uh, Mark Zuckerberg of Meta Industries. I mean, everybody loves, everybody loves the, the blood and guts and the war stuff of creation and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, it's what leads up to the end that God creates. So let's look at the end and see what it says. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. How many of us, when we imagine the end with God making a new earth, do we imagine a new heaven and a new earth? You know, I, I, I'll, I'll admit, I often thought of this kind of like, maybe I watched too much Doctor Who, but I think of it kind of in sci-fi terms, like, you know, like when we die, we go to the heaven, almost like it's a spaceship, right? We're sitting up there and we're looking down on the earth, right? You know, so, so my immortal soul is looking down on the earth, and then in the end, the four horsemen and the dragons and the bulls and all that stuff comes, and I'm sitting up here watching it burn, and eventually, you know, it all goes, it, it, all, it all burns up, and I just keep sailing away, you know? And the heaven I'm in stays the heaven I'm in. That's the image in my head, but that's not the image in Revelation. The image in Revelation is a new heaven and a new earth. God destroys all the old and creates all new. And uh, so the distinction in the very end is there is no distinction between the living and the dead. There is no distance from God, for God is right there. And what you end up getting is a story where 
the, the people are raised when the people die, and then they are raised, and then those who are raised are judged, and those who are judged die again, and then there's a new heaven and a new earth. You know, this is very different in the than in the movies, right? You know, where everything burns. And, and, and of course, it does make you question, like, where does hell fit into all this? Or is it just the case that even that doesn't exist anymore? All this kind of stuff makes you wonder, right? Uh, but it doesn't leave you with an impression that you sit up high and are watching it all burn away. But then you can see how it keeps going. We'll look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A new city coming down from heaven. And then I go like, wait, wait, wait. So is it coming down from the old heaven, and then it comes down to the new one, and then the old... Wait, uh, if you analyze Revelation too much, it's almost like it stops working. Because I think that's kind of the point. You're not supposed to be able to analyze it in that way. See, Revelation, the book of Revelation, and it's Revelation, there's no S, um, it's not Revelations, it's one revelation, one vision that was given to a guy named John. And John was an early Christian, and he was sent to this Greek island called Patmos, it's kind of off the coast of Turkey. He was sent there as a slave. And it, it was a punishment for what it, some sort of uh, thing that he did as a Christian. I don't know if he didn't serve the emperor correctly or wouldn't give tribute to Rome or whatever it is he did as a Christian. It got him sent to the island, and the way the Romans did it is once they send you into slavery, you just worked until the, you, you died, and they didn't care. And so there he was on this island, and it, somehow he sneaks off and goes off into this cave. And in this cave, God comes to him. The Holy Spirit comes to him in a vision. And shows him one revelation, one vision, one big continuous vision of the end of, end of it all. And he gives him this vision and tells John specifically to take it to the early Christians and take it to the church and show the people. Show the people who are being persecuted like you by the Roman Empire. And you can go to that cave today. It's a real place. It's an Orthodox chapel now. You see it? See, you can go in there. Um, on Patmos, it's run by a monastery. Um, but that's what the book is. That's what Revelation is. It's, it's a gigantic letter to the early Christians from God, giving them encouragement while they suffer from persecution. It's not a coded timeline of the end and, and what exactly is going to happen. There's no sort of Dan Brown secret that can be unlocked through the combination of paintings and mystery boxes or whatever. Jesus was clear, you will not know the day or the hour. The point of Revelation isn't to give you the day or the hour. It's to tell you how God, what God is going to do. And it's not intended as a warning to atheists and secular humanists that if they don't turn off the Sam Harris podcast and put down their Richard Dawkins, they're going to burn. Revelation was written to people who already believed, to people who already believed, to people who already had decided to dedicate their lives to Jesus Christ, to people who had already made that decision to do that when it was already dangerous and long before they'd heard anything about dragons or bowls or lakes of fire. And it's hard to imagine 
you know, you kind of read, you read through these stories, it's hard to imagine this being a comfort, you know. But if you're sitting there and you're one of the faithful and the world is coming down on you, what are you going to ask yourself? You're going to ask yourself, is God still here? Right? Is God present? We all ask that in any time of suffering. God, are you still here? And then we ask, like, why are you letting this happen? Are you still in control? Is there a purpose for this? But at, we ask that question. God, you know, why, are you, why is this going on? Have you abandoned me? Have you abandoned me, God? And, and what are you going to do about the Romans who are doing the persecuting? Are they going to get off the hook? Do you even care? Is there going to be any consequence for what they do? Because if at the end of the day, it's not going to make any difference whether I worship Zeus or worship you, and one way I get persecuted and the other way I go back to my comfortable life, I don't believe in Zeus, but I can fake it to make it. I don't believe in, you know, Hera or whatever. But I could pretend if it keeps me from getting fed to the lions. Why should I get fed to the lions? What difference does it make, God? And that's when God comes in with this vision. And he says, no, 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 hold on. I'm still in control here. I'm still paying attention. I'm not letting Nero off the hook here. But better still, this world is not all there is. We have something more coming up. And it's going to be glorious, so don't lose hope. Don't give up. Because there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So you'll never have to ask that question again about where God is because there will be no separation anymore. I mean, listen to what it says in Revelation. You will keep going, verses 3 through 4, chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice. From the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. You're just going to sit on that picture for a second, you know? No more death. No more crying. No more pain. Because they're gone. Which makes you wonder, maybe there really isn't a hell that everybody's looking down where people are still crying and still wailing and still in pain. Because if they're still crying, then it still is, right? It just got relocated. But this is a new universe God's creating where it's all good. So why does it matter what the end looks like? I mean, why even get a vague picture of it? Because it's God's answer to the question, is it worth it? Does it make a difference? Have I done all this and sacrificed all this and gave all this time and this energy and this effort of myself? And, and is there going to be nothing coming from it? God says, no, it is worth it. You're not just saving yourself, you're saving everybody else who could come after you. And I know this is one of those big questions that we all ask in our lives, right? Is it worth it? What difference does it make? You know, I give all of this, what comes from it? Well, the truth is you don't always see the results in your own lifetime. I mean, you think of your own parenting. 
right? Think, think of parenting. I mean, there you, you, know, you, you invest so much time and so much energy into it. And do you always get words of appreciation from your kids? Thank you, Mom, for making me eat the broccoli instead of the pizza tonight. Thank you, Dad, for limiting my access to Death Kill Gore 5, you know, blood edition. Thank you for making me do my homework. If, if you're in it for the validation, you're going to be left high and dry a lot. But in a sense, that's not a kid's job to give you validation. Right? And, and how do you measure the success of what you do? And, you know, we live in a world where we measure success. I think there were generations where as long as your kids survived to adulthood, didn't commit major crimes, and ended up marrying and reproducing without causing an intertribal war, yeah, you were good. I mean, the bar was pretty low, you know? Now, we try to measure the success of our parenting, you know? What do we do? Oh, well, you know, you may say that I was too... Uh, lenient with the goldfish in the minivan, but my kid got into Auburn. And then the next one will go, yeah, you may think I was too strict, but my kid got into Harvard. And so like suddenly what college you go to isn't about learning, it's about climbing the ladder. You know, Miss Tiger Mom, you ever hear about the Tiger Mom? She wrote a whole book about it, and she had these two girls, and she was just br almost brutal with them. You know, you will, you will do that violin, and I'm never going to compliment you. I'm just going to push you and push you. You're not going to get any validation until the very end because I don't want you getting weak. And, and uh, you know, and so people were like, you're a little bit too harsh on your kids, honey. She's like, no, no. And, the, and then they interviewed her the other day, and she's like, it worked. One got into Harvard, one got into Yale. It worked. And then, and then, and then I looked a little deeper, and I'm like, wait. Tiger Mom is a Yale law professor, as is her husband. She might have had an in. You think? She's not just a legacy, she's a double faculty legacy. Ah, so maybe it really wasn't. And then they interviewed her some more, and she's like, well, actually, I wasn't quite as strict as the book was, you know. I actually, I'm like, okay, so you're a liar too. Okay. But the idea is that we, we try to do these measurements of our kids, right? You know, the truth is, if my kids end up Plumbers or cable installers, which are both high-skill, honorable professions. Why should I be not happy with that? Right? And why does that make me a failure? Or if my kids go off the rails and start snorting stuff, I can't stop them from doing that. Why does that make me a failure? I can do what I can do. But if my attempt is at grasping for a measurement, you know, the hard thing is we, we're trying to grasp for things that we often won't see the results of until way later, or truth is, the results may not bear fruit till generations later for what we do. You know, it's why we're here as a church, right? In the, in the recent past, it's because people dedicated their time and their energy and their money and built this thing and organized it. In the long-term past, it's because of people like Ignatius of Antioch. I just love saying that name. He was a bishop of Antioch. Uh, he literally got thrown into the uh, he literally got thrown into the arena in Ephesus and eaten by lions. Um, the Christian art about him is quite fascinating. You know, you'll have this guy with his miter standing there in the stadium praying, and you'll have a lion on each side going, ah! You know, it's kind of like Manchester United with a bishop in the middle, like, ah! But it's because of people like him. 
and the work that he did that we're here today. It's because there were all those people through all those ages who made all those sacrifices and did all that work. And we may not see what they did or know what they did, but they gave us a gift. And the gift didn't bear fruit in their lives all the time, but it bore more fruit in the generations to come. We get to be here today to know God's love and be filled with the Holy Spirit because of the struggles they did. And whether their struggles were in the lion's den or in, in, in the altar guild or the tile committee, we're here today because of them. If what the early Christians did was just for themselves, it would have, been, it would have made no sense to give up the comfort and convenience of, of a prosperous Roman life to go and suffer that persecution for a God who says that maybe someday there might be something good, maybe. In that case, the Apostle Paul even says, if that's all it is, eat, drink, and be merry. But he says, we, we live for something more. Jesus did something to those early Christians and changed their lives and has changed their lives and has made it that there's something here that's worth preserving, and because of that witness, we have our faith today. You see, the impact we have on others is usually not something we can measure today. And often it's not something we even measure in our lifetimes. We see the impact in hindsight. But if we die before we see that, then we don't even get that hindsight. So what do we do? Rather than think that it's all for nothing, we look back on those who came before. We look back on those who came before and we see the impact they had on us and it reminds us of the way in which well, our service and our sacrifice has an impact. We look to the past to know that and have the hope in what we will do in the future. It reminds us that yes, our work for the Lord today is not for nothing. And we can see that it's not for nothing because we can see how it wasn't for nothing before. That's the real meaning of All Saints. Yes, it was originally a holiday uh, designed to remember all the saints who didn't have a day. See, first when Christians would die, they'd each get a day. But then the number of martyrs kept piling up and piling up and they'd already run through a whole year. And then they realized there were so many that they didn't even know their names. So we need a day to remember all of them, whether they were in the lion's den or in the kitchen. Right? And the idea that we remember the legacy of those who gave us what we have and the faith they have shared, that is invaluable. And that gives us the hope that what we are doing is, in fact, worth it.